Welcome, everyone, to this Cato Institute Forum on Birthright Citizenship and the Battle over Illegal Immigration. Uh, my name is Stuart Anderson. I'm Executive Director of the National Foundation for American Policy and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Um, as the invite to this forum uh, discussed, that this issue essentially came out of nowhere, uh, and a debate erupted over the over really the, the, the concept of whether or not the 14th Amendment uh, should allow the children of illegal immigrants to be U.S. citizens. And this raises a number of questions, such as should there be a constitutional amendment to prevent this from happening? And if that was to happen, um, what would the world look like and how would it be different from what we have today? And we have uh, two excellent scholars to discuss that issue. And... And I should uh, also mention that this issue, sometimes when people think of constitutional amendments, they think that that's you know, such a theoretical possibility. But there are actually a, a few things that, that bring even greater immediacy to this issue. One is that um, there's already been press reports that some of, the, some of the individuals who are involved in the Arizona law are interested in having a, uh, a similar law at the state level in Arizona that would um, deny birthright citizenship to the children of illegal immigrants. And second, uh, if the Republicans do take the House, uh, there have been uh, Republican members of Congress who have argued that this issue does not require a constitutional amendment and that could be done through legislative means. So this issue could be coming up, um, you know, in, it very well could come up in the, in the next Congress. Now, we have, as I said, we have two excellent speakers to discuss this. Uh, Margaret Stock, who is an adjunct faculty member in the Department of Political Science at the University of Alaska Anchorage, where she teaches American government. Uh, Professor Stock has uh, written about immigration, citizenship, national security, military affairs, and constitutional law. She's an Alaska attorney and a retired military officer. Um, she recently transferred to the reserve, to the retired reserve of the U.S. Army after serving in the military police corps and U.S. Army Reserve for 28 years. She has a JD at Harvard Law School and a Master of Strategic Study at the Army War College. Uh, Dan Griswold is director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute and has written widely on, uh, on immigration and trade, including in his excellent book, uh, Mad About Trade, Why Main Street America Should Embrace Globalization. Uh, luckily, Dan picks only the non-controversial issues to study, like, like trade and immigration. And, um, and since joining Cato, Dan has, uh, has authored several studies, and he's appeared on uh, numerous TV shows, CNBC, C-SPAN, uh, pretty much everything but The View with Barbara Walters, from what I understand, although, that, although that's pending. From, um, Dan holds a bachelor's degree in journalism from University of Wisconsin at Madison and a diploma in economics and a master's degree in the politics of the world economy from the London School of Economics. And we're going to start with Margaret. Thank you. Well, I'm from Alaska, so I have to start off by telling you a dirty little secret of Alaska immigration history, which is that I'm from the only state that apparently had an undocumented you immigrant. Would you be able to go up here to speak? I could, yeah. I'm the only state that apparently had an undocumented immigrant as its governor. Nope, not that governor. Uh, during territorial days, the bureaucrats in Washington appointed someone named John Franklin Strong 
to be the governor of Alaska, and apparently nobody checked his, his citizenship papers first. He was outed when his other wife showed up looking for him. <laughs> In addition to not being an American, he was a bigamist. Uh, anybody else here from Alaska? No? Okay. Um, Stewart said this, this issue came out of the blue, but I, I'll differ with you a little bit on that. I think Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun, and there's nothing new under the sun about congressional interest in birthright citizenship and denying uh, birthright citizenship to the children of undocumented immigrants. In fact, in 1995, there were hearings in Congress, and the Office of Legal Counsel, the Department of Justice, came by and testified about this exact issue. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that later in my presentation. But I was asked to cover a couple of things. First, to tell you a little bit about the history behind the 14th Amendment, the original intent, because that's of great interest today in the political debates that go on. To talk to you about whether changing the interpretation of the 14th Amendment would require a constitutional amendment or whether it could be done by Congress. And then a little bit about the practical implications. And my take on the practical implications is going to be informed by my experience, my longstanding experience as an immigration lawyer and as someone who has tried to help military families who often have children born overseas negotiate the difficult rules that apply to those who are statutory citizens rather than birthright citizens. So those are the things I'm going to cover. And to get started, I just want to remind you that way back when in the Declaration of Independence, the colonists had grievances against King George, and one of their grievances related to the fact that King George was restricting migration to the United States. So if you're interested in way back original intent, you might want to go take a look at uh, the Declaration of Independence. And of course, in the Constitution, there was no specific grant of the power to regulate immigration given to Congress. It wasn't specifically enumerated. There was a Commerce Clause, and there was in the Constitution a clause relating to the migration or importation of such persons. We know referring to slaves Congress was given the power to regulate or prohibit the importation of slaves after 1808. And in fact, Congress went and did that. Uh, and so many of the children of African-American slaves who benefited from the 14th Amendment when it was passed in 1868 were the product of people who had actually been imported into the United States illegally after Congress had banned the slave trade. So after 1808, there were people still being trafficked into the United States in violation of law, Today, we'd call those illegal immigrants or victims of human trafficking. And their children, in fact, benefited from the 14th Amendment when it was passed. It was a little bit of a different scale of illegal immigration from what we have today, but they did, in fact, have illegal immigration after 1808 in the form of human trafficking and some other types of illegal immigration. Uh, people coming through Canada to avoid paying taxes um, because if they sailed into New York, they'd have to pay a head tax. But... If they were Irish and couldn't afford the tax, they'd come in through, sneak in through Canada in the early 1800s. Uh, so that kind of Ill illegal migration went on. The first key statement, though, that was made about what the state of the law was at the founding can be found on the slide there. It's a case from New York. This is not a United States Supreme Court case in 1844. And scholars point to this because this case stated clearly what the law was at the founding, which was that the United States had adopted the common law of England, what lawyers call jus soli, the law of the soil. If you were born within the realm, if you were born within the boundaries of the United States, you were 
you were a citizen of the United States. Now, there were some exceptions to that. Uh, slaves were not citizens of the United States, and Native American Indians were not considered citizens of the United States. But everybody else born within the realm was considered to be a citizen, uh, an exception being diplomats, because they were not subject to the law of the land. They were exempt from civil and criminal law, so they were not considered to be uh, natural-born citizens of the realm by virtue of being immune from the laws. So this, was the, this is a statement from Lynch v. Clark of what the principle was, and the judge in this case says, every person born within the dominions and allegiance of the United States, whatever were the situation of his parents, is a natural-born citizen. Now, I know everybody in this room knows from American history that in the Dred Scott decision, this principle was reversed by the United States Supreme Court in an infamous decision that has been condemned roundly by everybody. Uh, and in the Dred Scott decision, the court essentially held that because Americans had not consented to the inclusion of African Americans within their polity, that the children of African Americans and African Americans were not considered to be citizens. And they could never be citizens because they had been slaves or their ancestors had been slaves. Now, we know that the 14th Amendment, also from history, was intended to reverse the Dred Scott decision. And we know that from reading the history and the Congressional Globe and the statements that were made by the Republican congressman who passed uh, and ultimately led to the enactment of the 14th Amendment. They intended to reverse Dred Scott, and they intended to restore the jus soli law that had been the common law up until the point when the Supreme Court reversed that in Dred Scott. And they came up with a pretty simple statement all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Very simple statement, absolutely clear from the Congressional Globe that they intended to restore what they felt to be the law of the land. Now, why was subject to the jurisdiction in there? Some people say, well, that would be superfluous if we didn't deny citizenship to illegal immigrants. Well, that's specifically in there because at the time there were three groups of people that Congress didn't think were subject to civil and criminal laws of the United States. The Indian tribes. You couldn't take an Indian into court and sue an Indian Native American at the time. You know, they were, they were not subject to the civil and criminal laws of the United States for the most part, and so they were not subject to the jurisdiction. Invading armies. I've got a little picture there from the Battle of New Orleans, which probably had, was on some people's mind, but to give you a modern analogy that's a little bit silly, if the Canadian Army invaded the United States of America today and took over Maine and was holding Maine in occupation and a bunch of Canadian women in the Canadian Army had babies in Maine, those babies would not be birthright citizens of the United States while the Canadian Army was holding Maine's territory and, and having babies there. So occupying armies cannot take over the United States by grabbing some of our territory and having lots of babies and then getting those babies to vote in our elections. I mean, that was basically the, the concept here. Uh, and then finally, diplomats, and this is still our law today. If you're born in the United States, but you're the child of a diplomat who holds diplomatic immunity, and the State Department keeps a list of the folks that are not subject to our jurisdiction, then your child is not a citizen of the United States at birth. And we do give green cards to those children, and eventually they can become citizens in some circumstances. But... They're not subject to the jurisdiction, not subject to the civil and criminal laws of the United States. Now, some people have said, well, we should use this language to take illegal immigrants. They're not, we're going to say that they're not subject to our jurisdiction. 
Um, that's a big can of worms. If they're not subject to our jurisdiction, then how do we deport them? How do we prosecute them for illegal reentry into the United States? Um, you know, they're going to be treated like invading armies, which would not be subject to our jurisdiction, or treated like diplomats or uh, sovereign Indian tribes. That, that question, by the way, has never been answered, exactly how you would carve out an exception just for the purpose of them having babies, but they would be subject to the jurisdiction for all other purposes. But there is definitely an issue there. Okay, so that's a little bit of a quick and dirty roadmap over original intent. Uh, I was asked to opine about whether you can change the meaning of a constitutional amendment by passing a statute. And I think that question was already answered in 1995 by the Office of Legal Counsel of the Department of Justice. Uh, They came in, testified at a hearing on this exact issue. It's a very erudite and comprehensive opinion that goes through the whole history of birthright citizenship in the United States. You can find it online. You can Google Walter Dellinger, Birthright Citizenship, 1995, and you'll find a copy of the best minds in the Department of Justice opinion on this, which is no, Congress can't change the meaning of the Constitution by passing a statute, and it's crystal clear. So you have to amend the Constitution. Uh, We also have some supporting case law that says that this is the case. This is the Wong Kim Ark case, a quote from it, uh, 1898, Uh, Wong Kim Ark, a case involving a Chinese immigrant, a a child of Chinese immigrants, and he was claiming to be a birthright citizen after after the U.S. government attempted to exclude him from the United States when he had made a trip abroad. He won his case, and the court reaffirmed that the common law of England, and again, this is post-14th Amendment passage, every child born in England of alien parents was a natural-born subject unless the child of an ambassador or other diplomatic agent of a foreign state or of an alien enemy in hostile occupation of the place where the child was born. So the Supreme Court of the United States basically reaffirmed this. Now, some people say, well, this didn't involve illegal immigrants. Uh, You could make some type of argument that, yes, in fact, it did, because Chinese weren't supposed to be immigrating to the United States at the time, and the court didn't seem to be bothered by the fact that they were granting citizenship to people, the children of people who had illegally immigrated to the United States at the time. Uh, we also have a statement from Plyler versus Doe, a much more recent case, 1982. Now, this was not a case involving the question of whether someone who was born in the United States was a citizen. This was a case involving illegal immigrants, children attending schools in the United States, illegal children, unauthorized immigrants attending schools in the United States. But the court did say relatively recently, no, there's no distinction, no plausible distinction with respect to 14th Amendment jurisdiction drawn between resident aliens whose entry into the United States was lawful and resident aliens whose entry was unlawful, and they went back and cited Wong Kim Ark. Now, some people will say, okay, it's not exactly on point. Yes, that's true, but it's a relatively recent reaffirmation of what we thought was the longstanding law. Okay, uh, also Wong Kim Ark says that the 14th Amendment doesn't give any authority to restrict the effect of birth to Congress. So Wong Kim Ark, you've got to overcome that if you're going to try to pass a congressional statute Uh, that that will change the meaning of the 14th Amendment. Uh, My personal view is that you're going to need a constitutional amendment if you want to do this. And so that brings the question up of, well, if you do have a constitutional amendment, you know, what are the practical implications of that? Well, first of all, you won't be cutting off the citizenship of anybody who's already in the country or already had kids. It would be sometime in the future. You'd have to pass the constitutional amendment, and at some point in the future there would be a cohort of children born who would not be birthright citizens. And Congress would have to figure out 
or the American people would have to figure out what would be the categories of people who would be automatic citizens by birth. Would those be the children of only of U.S. citizens? Would those be the children of lawful permanent residents? What about people who had applied for something but it hadn't been granted yet? Um, you know, I can give you the parade of horribles, but what if you have a pregnant woman on her way to her naturalization ceremony and she goes into premature labor and the law says you have to be a citizen for your kid to be a citizen? Well, she was on her way to raise her right hand and become a citizen and she had the baby, you know, 10 minutes before the ceremony. Um, that kid's not a citizen? Well, maybe not. You know, they're going to get a green card instead. You're going to have a lot of fights about that sort of thing. Uh, you know, somebody misquoted me once in the newspaper about um, Governor Bobby Jindal, but I'll, I'll use him as an example because it was in the news. Uh, Governor Jindal's mother came to the United States to attend college in the United States, and she was pregnant, apparently four months pregnant by news reports, when she entered the United States. He was born some six months, five, six months later in Louisiana. Now, Governor Jindal's staff says that his mother had a green card when he was born, but nobody's ever seen the green card. Uh, hasn't been produced, and you couldn't get a green card back in the 1970s to go to school. You could get a student visa, but you couldn't get a green card. So presumably, if we had changed the meaning of the 14th Amendment or if it were retroactive or whatever, and Governor Jindal wants to run for president, somebody's going to go, hey, cough up your mother's green card. You know, we want to see if you're really a you know, birthright citizen or whether you're something else. Um, and there would be fights about, you know, what day did his mother get her green card? When did she apply for it? What was the basis of it? Uh, all that sort of thing would go on. And so people would be constantly challenged, as both Senator McCain and Barack Obama have been, to prove what their status was on the date of their birth, what their parents' status was on the date of their birth. And that would become the new sport in politics, I think. Um, right now we have a really easy, simple, bright-line rule and I will tell you that it is the only easy and simple bright line rule in all of U.S. immigration and citizenship law. The only one. And I want to illustrate that a little bit here. So, uh, And to illustrate it, I've got to remind you that not only do we have birthright citizenship, jus soli, law of the soil, but we have jus sanguinis, law of blood, which in America is all controlled by Congress. It's statutory. And I have a whole bunch of congressional staffers in the room so that you know that you've all been busy out there for decades passing all sorts of laws conferring different kinds of citizenship on different sorts of people in different places for different reasons. There's a special statute that made John McCain you know, a citizen that just applies to people in Panama. Um, there's special statutes for people who are single, married, male, female. Um, one of the big fights immigration lawyers like to have is if Barack Obama was born in Kenya, hypothetically, which he wasn't, but if he was, would he have been a citizen at birth? And there's disputes about that because his mother was a U.S. citizen, but she wasn't old enough to transmit citizenship if she'd been lawfully married, but it's not clear she was lawfully married to Mr. Barack Obama Sr. because he was still married to someone else. And, you know, we get into these big arguments about uh, whether derivatives can be citizens or not. Um, the third way, which is another complicated way, is through naturalization, and that's when you start your life, generally speaking, not as a citizen and become a citizen later on, either by raising your right hand or through some other means, uh, but you become a naturalized citizen. So we have all these things in our law right now, and the only one that's simple is birthright citizenship. And to illustrate that, I want to show you this. Now, you don't have to absorb this. You don't have to read it. What this is is the first page of a cheat sheet that expert immigration lawyers use 
to try to figure out whether somebody's a citizen if they weren't born in the United States. Okay, now remember I said bright line rule. If they're born in the United States, it's pretty easy. All you got to do is figure out if their parents were diplomats because the Indian tribes now have a statute, Congress passed one saying they're all citizens, and we don't have any invading armies going on right now. So if you're born in the United States, it's crystal clear. If you're not, then we got to go to this chart. And this is a mess, okay? And not only is there, that's page one, there's page two, okay? Now, people are also always asking me, well, where can I get a copy of this? This is actually published by the American Bar Association. They will sell you a copy of this chart. It comes with a book that will help you interpret it. And it goes through all the different statutes that Congress has passed that regulate citizenship when you're not born in the United States. So the first question you should ask yourself, even if you, you, you want to have a constitutional amendment and whatever, you want to get rid of birthright citizenship, is what are we going to replace it with? Right now, this is what we're going to replace it with. A $500 tax on every baby born in the United States and an economic stimulus plan for immigration lawyers. Okay? Because it costs 500 bucks to pay United States citizenship and immigration services, roughly 500 bucks to file the form, wait the many months, and have them do this for you and tell you whether you're a citizen. Now, lawyers will also charge you substantial fees on top of that, usually several thousand dollars. So when you start thinking about the concept of getting rid of the simple bright line rule that a birth certificate showing birth in the United States in any one of our states confers citizenship, you need to think about the consequences. And the consequences are these. If a state birth certificate is no longer presumptive proof that somebody is an American, then some government bureaucracy is going to have to make that decision. Now, right now, there are three entities that decide, in the absence of a birth certificate, whether somebody is an American citizen. The Department of Homeland Security, the Department of State, and federal judges. And I'll tell you, they disagree all the time. So the State Department will issue a passport to someone, and Homeland Security will say, no, we don't think that person's a citizen. They do this all the time. They have fights all the time. We also have cases where State and Homeland Security both say somebody's not a citizen, and the person goes into court and gets a federal judge to rule that they're a citizen. So if you're going to get rid of birthright citizenship, you're going to subject every American baby, everybody born in the United States is going to have to go through some process to figure out whether they're a citizen and get that certificate, some kind of certificate saying that they're a citizen, because a state birth certificate won't be good anymore. They're going to have to fill out a form, provide documentation, presumably documentation about their parents and whatever their parents' status was at the moment of their birth. And again, that can be a moving target. So you, you know, you're going to have to watch that. Pay a fee and wait, because they're not going to get instant adjudications of their citizenship. They're not going to be able to get a Social Security number before they get this adjudication done. They won't be able to get a passport before they get this adjudication done. We're talking about visiting massive bureaucracy on every single baby born in the United States. Now, maybe some people think that's a good idea, but we should be upfront with people before changing a really simple bright line rule about the consequences of doing that. And I'll give you a little hint what I think are the consequences. Okay, I'll skip that. Okay. New complexity, big bureaucracy, lots of difficulty in time in figuring out U.S. citizenship for every baby born in the United States. It's going to cost money. Government agencies are going to get it wrong, so there's going to be a lot of litigation. Uh, and we're basically going to end up somehow at some point we're going to have to have a national birth registry, a list of every, everybody who's a citizen of the United States, create some kind of government agency that has the official list of who's a citizen because we're not going to be able to tolerate a situation where 
we're constantly fighting, you know, DOS, State Department says some people are, and federal judges say some people aren't, and, you know, we have three different agencies doing it. So effectively what we're going to end up with is national ID. We should tell people that up front, that this is what we're going to get, because it's inevitable. Um, and that is my quick and dirty guide to the bad stuff. Um, why keep it? Well, we've had it since the beginning. It's our heritage. We fought a great civil war. It's been the common law in the United States since 1787. It's been our constitutional law since 1868. And it is simple. Absolutely simple. Everybody can understand it. Um, you know, I think that for people who are conservative, that's a pretty, pretty strong argument. But I know we're going to have some time for questions when we can, uh, we can talk about that. And then I also hear out there the argument, well, nobody else does it. Okay, this is from the Center for Immigration Studies. It's a map of the world showing who does it and who doesn't. Everybody in black does it. Everybody in white doesn't. Okay, now I'm a patriotic American, and I would be the last person to tell you that we ought to do what everybody else in the world does. Uh, we are also the only nation in the world that has a Second Amendment to the Constitution, and being from Alaska, I hold that dear. Uh, so I don't, I don't personally hold much stock in the argument that because other people don't do it, we shouldn't do it or whatever. But I did want to show you this map from the Center for Immigration Studies. I'll give them credit for it, showing that, yes, there are lots of other people in the world who do it too, including our neighbors to the north. Thank you very much. Thank you, Margaret. Well, my role today is to... Uh, just fill in a few blanks and uh, draw some, examine the policy implications of birthright citizenship, some of the practical implications uh, behind the whole argument. <clears throat> One of the main arguments you hear for repealing birthright citizenship is it would help us get a handle on illegal immigration. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham sort of turbocharged the debate in July when he was on Fox News, and he said we need to repeal uh, birthright citizenship because people come here to have babies. They come here to drop a child. It's called drop and leave. To have a child in America, they cross the border, they go to the emergency room. Well, this may happen somewhere at some place, uh, but the prevailing evidence doesn't support that this is a widespread phenomenon that uh, requires changing the U.S. Constitution. The primary motivations why low-skilled illegal immigrants come to the United States is jobs, uh, better pay, uh, uh, employment opportunities, uh, family connections. That's why the inflow of low-skilled illegal immigrants is much stronger when the economy is doing well and tails off when the economy is not doing so well. In fact, all the evidence is over the last couple of years we've had net out-migration of low-skilled immigrants uh, because of the economy. <clears throat> the whole idea of an anchor baby, it's a derogatory term, and it isn't really accurate when you look at it. Uh, it isn't much of an anchor. Uh, it's no protection against deportation. Uh, it may be one more reason for a judge to maybe hesitate over a case, but uh, it's, we ha are deporting uh, parents of U.S. citizens all the time. Uh, it is not a statutory uh, reason for staying in the United States. Uh, the benefits to the parents... Uh, are limited. Uh, the courts have ruled their parents get uh, free uh, e education and they can't be denied at uh, emergency rooms. But other than that, having a U.S. citizen child is no great uh, advantage for the parents. It's not an easy road to legal status for the parents. 
the child has to become 21 years of age before they can sponsor the parent uh, to be legal. Of course, under current law, if you're in the country illegally for more than a year and leave, you have to wait 10 years to get in. So you add that on, and it could be 31 years. Uh, and then you have to wait five years to become a citizen. So we're talking a quarter of a century uh, from the time you drop your anchor baby uh, until you can uh, become a, a legal citizen here. Uh, the whole idea of birth tourism, this is a limited uh, phenomenon, very limited. Uh, the share of mothers who enter the country pregnant is tiny compared to the overall births. I spoke uh, a few days ago to Jeff Passell of the Pew Hispanic Center who's done the best work on uh, the illegal population. They're the ones who did the study uh, that found the number of, of babies born in the country to, to illegal parents. Uh, he pointed out that 80% of the mothers of uh, the undocumented mothers of children born in 2008, 2009, were here since 2005, so four or five years before they even had their baby. 90 to 95% of them were here for more than a year before the birth, obviously before the, the child uh, was uh, conceived. Uh, you know, it's a simple fact that the uh, illegal immigrant population tend to be young. They're in their 20s. They're sort of in their prime family-forming childbearing years. Uh, these children are just being born. They're normal people like us. These children are just being born in the normal uh, course of, of family life. It's not some sinister intention uh, to drop an anchor. Uh, Douglas Massey of Princeton, who has this long-going uh, Mexican migration project where over years he has interviewed literally tens of thousands of Mexican migrants and asked them why they come here. He said he virtually never comes across a female illegal immigrant who said she came here to, to drop a baby uh, and get citizenship. It's all these reasons having to do with uh, economic things. You know, the Border Patrol virtually never apprehends uh, pregnant women. I'm not saying it never happens, uh, but they're just not a common feature in the desert. It's, it's hard enough to run that gauntlet uh, when you're a healthy 24-year-old male, uh, never mind a pregnant uh, woman. <clears throat> and again, babies born here uh, to illegal parents are born for all the normal reasons um, there, the Pew study, there were 340,000 uh, births to uh, at least one parent with illegal uh, without status. And Jeff Passell tells me the large majority of them, uh, both parents are, are illegal. Uh, so those 340,000 uh, births per year, most of them would be the target of repealing the birthright uh, uh, citizenship. But we need to ask ourselves, among other things, uh, uh, maybe we want as a nation to have those 340,000 babies uh, born here. I prefer to have their parents here legally and have them be, uh, uh, have no uh, doubt about their legal status. But, you know, we are undergoing a historic uh, seismic shift in birth rates in this country. There are countries like Japan and Italy and Russia that, where their workforce populations are shrinking currently. Uh, our population growth rate in this country is slowly declining. Uh, immigration is one of the things that is setting us apart from these other aging uh, Western uh, economies. And these 340,000 kids whose parents are here illegally, uh, uh, by definition, uh, they <clears throat> will not have any problems with the English language. They're going to be fully uh, uh, assimilated uh, as they grow up. I think the challenge to us is not to question their citizenship, but to give them the educational tools, the support they need to become productive uh, citizens to become good parents themselves, 
uh, and to become uh, full uh, citizens in our, in our country, in our republic. Repealing birthright citizenship of these kids would have negative, unintended consequences. I mean, the immediate ironic effect would be to increase the illegal population. These kids are going to continue to be born here. They just won't have uh, citizenship or legal status. So the number of illegal immigrants will grow uh, if we repeal birthright citizenship. There was a study at the uh, Migration Policy Institute uh, that was out recently that found that denying birthright citizenship to children whose mother and father were here illegally would increase the illegal population by 44% by 2050. It's not that far away. That's 4.7 million additional illegal uh, uh, immigrants here, and 1 million of those would be third generation, uh, where their parents were born here, uh, and yet they would be denied uh, uh, illegal, they would be denied uh, citizenship status. The conclusion of the study is rather than shrink the size of the unauthorized population in the United States, repeal of birthright citizenship would likely expand it substantially. Uh, it is simply not in our interests as a nation to have a permanently disenfranchised, multi-generational population living in our midst. It's it's ironic to me that people like Roy Beck at Numbers USA make a point, uh, as our friends at the Center for Immigration Studies do, that America is, is exceptional in granting uh, birthright citizenship. Well, one, we're not that exceptional. I think there's 20 or 30 other countries that grant it. But if we are exceptional, I say, so what? America is exceptional for a lot of reasons. Uh, Margaret's pointed uh, some of them out. Uh, do Roy Beck and the other critics really want us to be more like, oh, Germany and Japan? in terms of the way we treat uh, our immigrant populations. You know, Germany is struggling to assimilate uh, their Turkish uh, populations, some of them second and third generation. Uh, The same is going on Japan in Japan with Korean uh, immigrants who are second and third generation and yet uh, still remain apart from society. Some of the same immigration critics who say, look, we're going to end up the way Germany and Japan are with permanently alienated uh, subgroups in our population, Uh, Well, maybe one of the reasons why we've been so successful in this country in assimilating immigrants is that we do have birthright citizenship, and Canada does as well. In fact, can you think of two countries in human history who have successfully assimilated so many millions of people as the United States and Canada? And I would argue birthright citizenship uh, very much uh, plays a role in that. Uh, Birthright citizenship also breaks any cycle of alienation uh, by the second generation. It guarantees that no ethnic group will be permanently disenfranchised uh, from U.S. society. Maybe the parents who come over here, they always struggle uh, with the language, with the culture, uh, but not, uh, not their children. You know, my, uh, my conservative friends uh, show a, an odd lack of confidence in the lovability of our country. Uh, <clears throat> I think this is a country where if you're born here and you grow up here, you tend to be loyal to the country uh, and, and quickly become uh, assimilated. And we know on the whole, in America, the children of immigrants are well-adjusted. Uh, they speak fluent English. They invariably achieve more than their parents. In some cases, uh, uh, achieve more than Americans on average. And for better or worse, uh, they share, and I'm a father of teenagers, they share the same cultural attitudes as other American teenagers. In fact, you know, the the chances are that a Hispanic kid born in Texas to unauthorized immigrant parents 
will grow up in America speaking English as fluently as my three kids. He or she will listen to the same sort of music, watch the same movies, read the same books, study the same history, sing the same national anthem. Uh, the kid from Texas may root for the Cowboys while my son roots for the Redskins, uh, but they'll be Americans in every sense uh, of the word. Birthright citizenship it has been a settled concept in this country uh, from the beginning, really even before uh, the Declaration of Independence, going back to English uh, common law. It was suspended for a brief and unhappy decade between Dred Scott and uh, the 14th Amendment, it's been affirmed by the Supreme Court at virtually every uh, point up until modern times. It is a drastic and risky stab at the problem of illegal immigration. Uh, when we have a much more practical, uh, appropriate solution at hand, and I'm not going to uh, make a big statement about this, but I think uh, this is one of the things comprehensive immigration reform uh, would do for us. We need to change our immigration laws so that peaceful, hardworking people who come to this country to work uh, can live here in legal status, and there won't be uh, this hand-wringing about illegal uh, immigration and the fate uh, of their children. And one of the things, one of the practical things that uh, comprehensive immigration reform would do, I think, is restore the traditional circular flow of migration from Mexico and other Latin American countries. Traditionally, they have come here temporarily to solve problems back home, and uh, according to Douglas Massey's research, 80% of them would eventually go home. And when you're free to circulate across the border, maintain your ties back home, you don't have those, uh, that, that uh, incentive to bring your family uh, over here, your wife, and to have children here. You will go back to your home country uh, and have your family there. So I think we'd have less of a problem with the birth to low-skilled temporary immigrants uh, if they were legalized. And I'll just end on this note. I think this is a very politically charged uh, issue. I know some people are hoping to question birthright citizenship uh, for certain uh, political advantages. This is Washington, after all. Everything has a political uh, angle to it. Uh, but I think the evidence is clear. This will achieve nothing in terms of results. Even if you are genuinely concerned about illegal immigration, this is not the way to go about it. And I think especially for uh, our Republican friends, I think there is a, a real danger here Questioning birthright citizenship, I think that's going to be interpreted by a lot of Hispanic Americans as questioning their patriotism and their allegiance to our, uh, our country, and I think it's going to cause uh, some significant political problems uh, for conservatives and Republicans going forward uh, because the Hispanic population, it, 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 even if you could cut off immigration tomorrow with a 20-foot-high fence uh, on the 2,000-mile length of the border, the Hispanic population would continue to grow and continue as uh, the single fastest growing uh, major uh, political uh, constituency. My hope is that the President and the new Congress can work together in 2011 uh, for a real solution to the challenge of illegal immigration, not phony solutions that tamper with long-standing and valuable constitutional principles. Thank you very much.